a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 100 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say for the 100th time, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business from people at all levels of the business. Did I mention that I've done this a hundred times now? It seems weird, because in a lot of ways, it seems like I just started this yesterday, and in some others, it just seems like I've been doing it forever. But it really has been a bit of a crazy ride, and when it comes to having enough longevity to make it to 100 episodes, at a certain point, it no longer is about me, and it is about the listeners who tune into this podcast, and for whatever reason... Uh, Listen to the thoughts and ramblings of some guy in Minnesota in his spare bedroom talking to sportscasters. So, sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank everyone who's tuned in for one podcast or who has subscribed and listened to every single one of them. Uh, Really, it's you guys who keep this going. At a certain point, it would make no sense to keep paying the web hosting fees if it was just me sitting in my spare bedroom talking to myself. Because of that, I've gone out of my way to get a big-time guest, and I started working on this late May, early June, because sometimes when you try to get a big name, it takes time. That's what I've found. A lot of them will do it, but a lot of them are very busy and are sometimes difficult to get a hold of, difficult to coordinate schedules, and frankly, I'm busy too, not on the same level doing the same thing, but making both schedules fit is sometimes quite difficult, but I was able to do it actually twice with episode 99 last week with Kenny Albert. That was awesome. But for episode 100, I'm really happy to announce Vern Lundquist. Vern needs no introduction. I think anybody who follows a podcast like this probably knows exactly who he is. But if you don't and have been living under a rock with no TV, he is the longtime pro and college football broadcaster for CBS. He has worked the Masters, has been the voice of the SEC for many, many years. And Vern Lundquist, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really an honor. Sure. Glad to be here. So I want to tell you the story that uh, you probably get this all the time, but I want to get it out of the way because I was really excited when we were able to schedule this interview and I told my wife, I'm going to get to talk to Vern Lundquist. I've watched him forever. I bet you know who he is, and she's not into sports. So she goes, no, no, it sounds familiar, but I don't really know. So I kind of go through some of your famous calls. She goes, it's not ringing a bell. And then I go, who the hell is Happy Gilmore? And she goes, (laughs) oh, I love that guy. (laughs) So how often are you recognized from that movie still? Well, you know, the great, it was was filmed... My part was done in Vancouver, British Columbia, in one day in the spring of 19, 
96, uh, toward the end of the shoot, and uh, the movie came and went in theaters and had no real impact. Uh, and then they released it on VHS, and all of a sudden uh, it became an underground favorite. Uh, and, and the wonderful thing about it is it's given me a connection across two generations of, of young people. Um, USA, I think it's USA Cable plays it regularly, like once a month. And so it's kept that movie fresh. Uh, and, and my role, that one line, and I'm still not sure why that resonates the way it does, but it certainly does. Uh, my wife and I, Nancy and I went out to the, to the world premiere, uh, at Universal Studios and it was quite pretty heavy trip. And to sit in a full theater, uh, alongside Bob Barker and Adam, Adam Sandler and, uh, others in the movie. And when that line came up late in the show, uh, people laughed and, and they have ever since. And, uh, I get it. Oh, you know, now that I'm semi-retired, uh, I don't travel as much nor, nor show up at sporting events. But over the years, it, it has given me a connection with not, not just the generation that followed me, but, uh, the young people who are in college now, um, there's a the, one of my favorite stories about it is uh, concerning it came and and when it achieved when it achieved uh, this popularity it it was like wildfire and I was doing a basketball game in January of whatever year it would have been 2005 we had North Carolina at Arizona and I was working with Billy Packer and. Uh, we were watching the North Carolina practice on a Friday afternoon, uh, and we were sitting halfway up in the stands to, to be removed from whatever instructions Roy, Roy Williams was giving his team. He he prefers it that way, and that's fine. Uh, when when the uh, practice was concluded, uh, the 12 members on the team were doing stretching exercises, and a lanky guy uh, loped up the steps to where we were sitting, and he said, uh, Mr. Lundquist, the team would like to talk to you. And I pointed to Billy Packer, and I said, you mean they want to hear from Billy Packer? And, no, they asked for you. And so I went back down. I followed him back down on the floor. And now I've got 12 guys on the floor doing hamstring exercises and all sorts of things. And Tyler Hansborough, the, the uh, leader and All-American of the team, uh, looked up at me and he said, okay, please give us the line from Happy Gilmore. <laughs> and I knew exactly what line he was talking about. So I, you know, mimicked me, putting my hand over my mouth and saying, who the hell is Happy Gilmore? And they all burst out laughing. So I told the guys, if you win the national title, I expect in, in March, and this was in January, I expect a shout-out for the first motivational talk that you received en route to the championship. Well, by golly, they did win the national title. And I got no shout-out, and I've been irritated about that ever <laughs> since. I don't want to spend much time on Happy Gilmore, but I do 
want to ask, did you just follow the scripted lines or did you get any input on how you would say things? What was that process like? Well, the the director was Dennis Dugan, and he actually is an actor in the movie. Uh, he plays uh, the tour commissioner. Uh, 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 it's mad pattern after Den- Dean Beeman at that time. And then there was a script, uh, and I was expected, you know, I, I had done two bit parts in movies prior to that, so I kind of knew the routine. And the routine is you're expected to show up and have your lines memorized. And they sent me a script about three weeks before the, the day of the shoot. And uh, it was pretty, the, the last half of the movie is, uh, I, I bet I've got, I don't know, I've never counted, but I bet I've got eight or nine scenes. And uh, there was a little improvisation. Uh, Dennis would say, you know, say, say it however you would say it, because their screenwriter it didn't know me at all. Uh, I will, I'll, I'll share another thing about the movie that is a total inside joke. And I have uh, a group photo in my office that was taken the day of that, that filming, uh, that includes, uh, let me see, Adam Sandler's in it. Uh, the caddy uh, is is in the show. And there's a guy uh, from New York, a really good-looking man, who is Adam Sandler's roommate at New York University Film School. A very handsome guy, Jack. I'm, I'm having a senior moment here. But he said to Jack, this was at 7.30 in the morning, let's have some fun. Uh, Jack, I want you to go over to a wardrobe and make up, uh, get a blue shirt, a red tie, blue coat, get yourself uh, made pretty. It didn't need much work. And come out. I want you to sit next to Vern in every scene uh, and just react to what he says. But you cannot say a word because you're nem- not a member of the Screen Actors Guild. So in every scene, when you see the movie again, you'll see Jack sitting there looking, and he's the guy to whom I say, who the hell is Happy Gilmore? <laughs> uh, and he is—he was listed in the credits as an associate producer. Well, he and Adam Sandler have been lifelong friends. Uh, if you see the credits of any Adam Sandler movie, he's listed as the executive producer. So, I, I you know... It was a silent launch towards stardom for him. <laughs> now to the actual broadcasting career that I brought you here to talk about. I read that when you were in high school, your coach put his arm around you and said, I don't think this is going to work for you. You should, you should, Maybe you should think about being a cheerleader. Uh, what was your reaction to that comment? And was that the point in your life that you knew you wanted to get into broadcasting? Well, no, I was not surprised by it. I I was very very short in junior high school. I I did play on on the junior high school team, uh, but in in the ninth grade, which was well, we had seven, eight, and nine back then. Uh, there were twelve of us on the team, and there's a there's a row in the uh, the best part of the row. Our guys all five eight, five nine, five ten, some even five eleven. And on either end, there's a guy named Terry Gardner, one end, a very successful attorney in Fort Worth, 
and I'm on the other end, and we were each 5'3", and couldn't have weighed 105 pounds. So I, I saw action when when there was mop-up time. I, I was never really a gifted athlete, and I knew that even then. But I, I was competitive. I love sports. Uh, so I, And I was way too small for football, way too small. So my compensation for the lack of athleticism was to, uh, to, to write a, a sports column. And I did, believe it or not, we had a weekly newspaper in junior high, university junior high, and I wrote a sports column. It was pretty, pretty inferior, but, uh, and I continued that in high school. So I was writing uh, a weekly piece, sports piece. With, and so when this was in the, the fall of my junior year and I'd been a JV guy the, my sophomore season and the coach, we had a really good team by the way, we went to the state championship lost it, but we got there twice uh, and I was like the 14th guy on a 12-man team and his name was Wallace Dockall and he very kindly said, you know, I don't think uh, this is going to work for you Uh and I did, <laughs> I, I did run, uh, and you had to be elected as a cheerleader, but I was for my senior year. And I also ran for student body office and won that with a partner. Uh, so I was active in a variety of different ways. And, and my compensation for my lack of athletic ability uh, was to, to write about sports. And I also... Uh, even then, well, not not right in high school, but in college, uh, I did a lot of public address work. Uh, I was the PA announcer at the football games. And I was the PA announcer at the basketball games. But it was never, ever, ever my intent uh, to go into sports broadcasting as a craft. I wound up uh, going to Texas Lutheran. It was college then. It's university now. Uh, 50 miles from my hometown of Austin, and and uh, they had a they had a, a local radio station called called letters were K W E D 1580 on the right side of your dial, uh, and and it was daytime only, and they would hire college guys to work weekends, so I auditioned for the job my my junior year, and was turned down in favor. Uh, for another guy, but I, I love the idea of it. Uh, so my senior year in college, I went back and auditioned again, and I got the job. So I was a, a Sunday, Saturday, Sunday afternoon disc jockey on a daytime only station, and we probably reached 150 people at least. Uh, but that was my initiation uh, into broadcasting. Uh, and, and again, I, I mean, I've got a degree in sociology with a double minor in history and Christianity. And, uh, I, I had no idea of pursuing it full time. Uh, and then circumstances I, I, because I had a lack of, uh, no, no real goal in my life. And this was in the early sixties and Vietnam was starting up and I graduated in 62 and I thought, well, what am I going to do? I I didn't know. My dad was a Lutheran minister, 
So I went uh, in, I followed in his footpaths for one year. I, I enrolled in the Lutheran School of Theology in Rock Island, Illinois. My dad had been ordained there uh, on D-Day in June 6th of 1944. And I, I, I wound up with a summer job as a replacement announcer that summer of 62 at KROS in Clinton, Iowa. Lived in uh, the YMCA, $8.50 a week for a room with the bathroom at the end of the hall. Uh, and if you want to shower, it'll be an extra 25 cents. Walked across the street. The radio station was on the second floor of a five-and-dime store and worked four to midnight. And then right before school started, I got an offer to be a nighttime DJ at WOC in Davenport, Iowa, which was right across the Mississippi from Rock Island. So that one year... Uh, in in theological school, I was working as a DJ from nine to midnight, uh, going back to the dorm at the, the at the Augustana College where the seminary was located, and working on the kitchen crew in the morning to help pay expenses. But I realized uh, early, early, early that I had no real purpose in being there. I I didn't have the commitment. Um, it was just a kind of an attempt to fill a void in my life. <clears throat> and so I was determined to finish out the year. I did. I've got 18 hours of theological school on my resume and and uh, went back to my hometown of Austin and landed a summer job as a replacement FM disc jockey at KTBC. AM, FM, TV. We were the only uh, television station in Austin, uh, and the, the property was owned by President Mrs. Johnson. Uh, and the sports job opened up. And I thought, wow, I, I'd be interested in that. <laughs> um, and so I asked for an audition, um, and they gave me one in like the first week in August of 63. And the the sports guy who'd been there for 12 years had, had taken the job in Houston. And uh, I was called in the program director's office. And you can fill in Monday through Friday. Uh, you'll do Saturday and Sunday sportscast on television. Uh, Monday through Friday, we'll have you work as a disc jockey from 5 to 9 on AM radio. And uh, I was 23 years old. Living with my mother and dad, I had no real expenses, and I didn't make much money, but I didn't mind the idea of working uh, seven days a week. And I did that until the guy they hired as a full-time guy didn't work out. They came to me and said, uh, we we like your work. Uh, are you interested in taking the full-time job? That was March 1st of 64. And that's when I became a sports broadcaster full time, and uh, and then followed a, a roller coaster path to where I am now. Let's go backwards a little bit. I want to go sure. back to where you talked about your father being a pastor, and I feel like a lot of the skills that 
is required to be a pastor, speaking publicly and uh, projecting all of those things, are certainly applicable to a sportscaster. Do you think that being around that most of your life helped you uh, to be maybe a natural fit as a sportscaster? Uh, There is no doubt whatsoever that it did. Uh, First of all, I was the oldest of five children. Uh, and, and keep in mind now, uh, my dad had been an ordained pastor, and we, we, we began his professional life in Everett, Washington, 30 miles north of Seattle. And that was his first full-time church. And so as the oldest of five, the four of us were, well, I was born in Minnesota when, when he was a student minister, but my three brothers were born in in Seattle, in Washington. Uh, I have a sister who was born once we moved to Austin. But number one, I, I'm the one of the five who inherited his his voice. Uh, but equally significant, I think, is that uh, I sat in church every Sunday morning and listened to him uh, preach a sermon, 20 minutes or more, uh, very often less. Uh, and it, it, it inculcated in me a, an absence of fear of public speaking. I, I understand people for whom that is a dreaded assignment. You've got to get up and talk in public. Well, I was blessed because I was so used to my dad doing that. Uh, and I emulated his style, I think, uh, he was not an orator. It wasn't a, a thunderous pound the pulpit, and, and uh, he was more of a, a communicator and a storyteller. And I think I also inherited that trait from him. Um, and and I was uh, to, to go back to why I would have decided uh, to, to attend theology again. It was an absence of any real purpose. Uh, that I had through four years of college, but I thought I was comfortable living uh, in in a minister's home and comfortable with what my dad do. Uh, my dad did for a living. Uh, I I I hope that I inherited his compassion for people, his empathy for people. Uh, those are traits that are are not genetically passed down. They're, they're acquired and learned. And I have no doubt that uh, he was a role model for me. I also read that going back to talking about being the DJ at the Texas Lutheran College radio station, you were on the board uh, when the news about JFK being shot came through the wire. What was that day like and that moment in particular? Well, that was, that was actually... Uh, the, it was not in, in at Texas Lutheran. That was my first, that was November 22nd, of course, of 63. Uh, and and that was, I was working at KTBC in Austin. Okay. So now I had been doing the weekend telecast. Labor Day, Labor Day was my initial uh, weekend, uh, my initial appearance on television. So coming up here in a month, it will be 56 years, the completion of 56 years. So when I got that weekend assignment and I was filling in 
as a DJ, they also threw at me a couple of days a week working in the noon, or what we call working the board. Uh, and you're sitting in a, a gigantic uh, uh, console with, you know the phrase potentiometers, they're pots. That's how you regulate the sound, volume up, volume down. You turn the, the microphones on and off for the news guys who were in a little uh, booth adjacent to the control room. So I was working the board uh, during the noon hour on November 22nd in 1963. And I would, I would call myself at that point in my life, I was a Kennedy liberal. Uh, I think those of us uh, who, who grew up in that era uh, I mean, that was the seismic event in our lives, just like uh, the, the, uh, Pearl Harbor was for our parents, and 9-11 was for the, the younger generation. It's a, it's a life-altering day. And uh, somewhat ironically, my, my boss had a daughter who was a classmate of mine at Stephen F. Austin High School. And we were not dating at all. We were not romantically involved in any way, shape, or form. But she had asked me to be her escort to go hear President Kennedy speak that night in Austin. His his itinerary for the day of the 22nd, he began with a breakfast uh, speech in Fort Worth, flew to Dallas, and was on his way to the trademark where he's doing a noon speech when the assassination took place. Uh, he was then uh, uh, scheduled to fly to Austin and to do a, a more or less a famous old kind of political rally uh, in Austin that night. Where I'm, I'm running the board, and I put the the, the agriculture report. I think when the, the news ran twelve to twelve fifteen. And then uh, we had a, an agriculture report, and I put the guy on the air. And the phone rang in the control room, and it was Nita Louise Kellum, my classmate, calling to tell me that her dad had given me his approval to be her escort to hear Johnson, uh, Kennedy speak that night. And they had a guy who would come in and, and take my place. And as we were uh, making plans... Uh, the newsman, a guy named Hal Nelson, walked in. He said, put me on the air immediately. Uh, the president was shot in Dallas. And so I did that. Um, and, of course, our lives changed because uh, almost immediately we switched uh, to CBS television. I mean, CBS radio took over uh, everything on the air, so our local uh, guys were were not need, need not needed in that sense, uh, and I mean I was watching in our control room in in our newsroom when Walter Cronkite famously uh, took off his glasses and shed a tear and said uh, at whatever the time was one o'clock I guess uh, President Kennedy had announced dead uh, within forty five minutes I would say. Now, we were owned by a man who all of a sudden had become the president of the United States, and he was accompanying President Kennedy on this trip. Uh, and because we were a broadcast outlet, 
and no one knew initially who was responsible nor whether there was a possibility of a coup. We had Secret Service agents. Now, they were in town already in anticipation of Kennedy's visit. But we were a five-story building. They're still in the same place in, in downtown Austin. Uh, television studio on the second floor. And within 45 minutes, we had Secret Service agents in the lobby, at the loading dock, and on every elevator exit on every floor. Because no one knew if it was a coup or not. And and I had a small, I mean, really, really, really infinitesimally small role in all of this because they, they called me, the news director did, and he said, um, CBS is flying in a, a, a news correspondent with a sound man and a cameraman, uh, and they're coming, they're landing in Austin at, I think, 5 o'clock uh, from Washington, uh, they went through Dallas, changed planes, and his name was David Shoemaker. And he's a very prominent Washington correspondent. Of course, Dan Rather was with the president uh, in, at, uh, in Dallas at the time. So they flew David in with his crew, and his purpose was to go to Johnson City, an hour away from, from Austin, uh, where Johnson had been raised. Uh, um, no no relation in the name of the city and his name, and I don't think. Uh, but that's where he had grown up. And so they assigned me as a, a driver for this crew from CBS. Uh, so the four of us got into the station wagon that the, the company owned, and I drove them to Johnson City that night. We probably left at 7, got there at 8.15, and they had lined up probably 15 interviews with people who had grown up uh, in the Johnson family or associates of President Johnson, uh, and we sat down and did, did these interviews. I've watched it all to help, help carry uh, equipment in and out of the houses. Uh, and, and the intent of all this was to gather whatever information they could about who who was this man who now had become the president of the United States. Uh, we were probably there till 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, and they wrapped up. It was all, keep in mind now, black and white optical sound film uh, on 100-foot reels. They had a 400-foot uh, reel. But that film had to be processed. So we put it in bags. I took them from Johnson City uh, to the Austin airport. About We got there about 5 in the morning, I guess. And there was a commercial flight uh, from Austin to Dallas and then to New York. Uh, and they took these bags of film with them. And it was processed in New York. And these were just little vignettes of people. And they needed, because who knew how long Cronkite was going to be on the air? Uh, and it turned out he was on for three days with occasional rests uh, from, from backup guys. But they filled in the hours uh, with these little interviews. So that was, that was my Kennedy story. Uh, and, of course, to this day, it's, uh, for those of us who were alive then, 
uh, a, a life-altering moment. From Austin, you eventually moved to Dallas to work for WFAA and end up with the Dallas Cowboys play-by-play position, which, you know, timing-wise, you were able to go to five Super Bowls to broadcast them during that time frame, covering, I believe, Roger Staubach and a lot of all-time greats. Just tell us some stories from your time with the Cowboys. Well, uh, I got the job in Dallas, and it, 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 in retrospect now, over 56 years uh, in this business, that that leap from Austin to Dallas uh, was probably as significant as anything that ever happened to me professionally. Austin was, uh, I mean, Dallas was the 10th largest market at the time. I'm just in the top five now, I believe. And I went to work uh, for an ABC affiliate, uh, WFAA Channel 8 in Dallas. I got the job only having been turned down twice. Uh, I auditioned uh, in the in the uh, mid-60s. It went to another guy. Uh, he was there two years. He left. I auditioned again, uh, and it came down to another fella and me, and the other fella beat me out. His name was David Lane, and David uh, later became my boss. And so David... David was the sports guy. He had, I was in Austin. He was in Temple, Texas, about 60 miles north of Austin, a smaller market. Uh, but he, he won the job. And then, and we knew each other. Uh, we had been friends. Uh, he called me six months after he'd moved into the position. And he said, Jeannie and I have just discovered that we're expecting our first child. And we've made a lifestyle choice. I'm gonna. I don't want to raise a, a child, not getting home till 11:30 at night, uh, and going to work at one in the afternoon. So I'm gonna request a switch, and move into the uh, sales department with hopes of becoming a manager. And I recommended you for the job. So David facilitated my getting that position. Uh, I had to go back up to Dallas. They re-auditioned me uh, live. You know, there was no videotape back then. Uh, and I got the job in September of 1967. And so I had been there less than a week on the air, and I was thrilled. I mean, you know, it, Dallas to me, and the Cowboys were coming in to, into prominence, they made the playoffs uh, and played Green Bay the year before, and in the uh, NFC champ- NFL championship game, the merger hadn't happened. And the very first week that I was in Dallas on the air, I got a call from the Cowboys front office, and they said, "We normally don't do this, but you're brand new to town. Uh, we'd like you to know who we are." And so we're inviting you to join us on the charter flight this weekend. We're leaving on Saturday uh, to go play the Redskins in Washington, D.C. Well, I I did backflips, first of all, to be asked uh, 
to just be on the plane was a, a terrific honor. And so I, en route to Washington on the charter, uh, the the man who had called me and made the invitation, his name was Al Ward, and he was number two in the organization uh, to Tech Shram. Uh, and Al said, uh, we normally, uh, we don't travel, uh, we, we travel on, obviously, our, our radio broadcast team, but we don't travel a pre- or a post-game guy. Uh, and since we're going to Washington, you're on the charter, uh, would you like to be a part of our broadcast team and do the post-game interviews? Well, now the, the backflips went orbital. And uh, Dallas won that game, uh, came from behind less than a minute to go. Uh, Don Meredith hit Dan Reeves with a, a 55-yard pass out of the backfield for the go-ahead touchdown. And then I got to go into the locker room and do my first ever uh, radio broadcast as a post-game guy for the Cowboys. Well, it went well. They liked it. And they asked me back the next week. And the game was in the Cotton Bowl. And all of a sudden, from mid-October till the end of that season, uh, I was suddenly the pre- and post-game guy, and I traveled with the team. Uh, the play-by-play man, was he's still living. We were in contact. He's 94 years old. He's a wonderful man named Bill Mercer. Uh, the color man then, the color guy, was a columnist uh, uh, in, in Dallas named Blackie Sherrod, who was up there with the Jim Murrays, the Red Smiths, uh, the Vermin Dishers, one of the great columnists ever. And so here I was uh, joining forces with these guys. And that's that's how I wound up doing the pregame, the halftime, and the postgame at the Ice Bowl in Green Bay on uh, New Year's Eve 1967. Uh, and, and I did that for and I, meanwhile, I continued, of course, with uh, with my Monday through Friday responsibilities at uh, the ABC affiliate in Dallas on on television. But uh, I did that in '67, '68, and '69. Those three years, and then Blackie decided he had had enough of the travel. Uh, plus trying to write a, a column every day of the week. So he resigned to the color commentator. Uh, Tech Shram asked me if I wanted that role. Well, of course I did. So then in 70 and 71, uh, I sat next to Bill Mercer, and I, was the, and I was not an analyst, believe me. I had no pretensions about that. But you talk about people and stories and, weave things in and out. And I sat with Bill next to him for those two years. And then Bill took, uh, the, the senators were moving from Washington to Arlington and becoming the Texas Rangers. And Bill Mercer's dream had always been to be a major league baseball announcer. Well, all of a sudden he was offered the job uh, to do baseball. And Tex called me and he said, uh, 
it's a long, 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 complicated story that uh, even as much leisure as we have, uh, <laughs> it takes too long. But uh, Tex said, essentially, I, I know you have no experience as a play-by-play guy. I obviously think you can do it, and I'd like to offer you the play-by-play job. Well, uh, simultaneous with this offer, I had been in Los Angeles and had been offered a five-year contract uh, to go to work for KNXT, the CBS O&O in L.A. as their Monday through Friday, uh, 6 and 11 sportscaster. And I had I'd flown out there. I was dazzled, second largest market in the country. Uh, I had a chance to go. I was 32 years old. And uh, I verbally accepted it. So now we're in New Orleans for the Super Bowl, the Cowboys and, and uh, Miami Dolphins, Super Bowl six. And I told Tex about this offer. He says, don't sign anything. I want to have lunch with you when we get back. And that's when he explained that he had this position open and he wanted me to fulfill it. And he said, uh, what do you want to be doing in 10 years? And I said, my, my dream now is uh, network play-by-play. He said, well, if you go to L.A. and you do Monday through Friday on the air in the studio, uh, do you think uh, if a play-by-play job opened up with an NFL team, the Rams, they've got a guy named Dick Enberg. He's pretty good. He's doing their games. Uh, do you think you'd get a shot at that? He said, if you turn down L.A. and you stay in Dallas, I'm prepared to offer you the play-by-play position. And he said, again, uh, I think you can do it, or I wouldn't actually ask you uh, to fill the position. So based on his recommendation, I turned down the offer in Los Angeles. And that would have been uh, uh, the spring of 1972. Uh, and I took over as play-by-play guy uh, in that season, 72. His point was, if we're going to be pretty good, and if you can do this, uh, the networks will find you. You don't have to go looking for the network. And that, that's exactly what happened. After two years, I'd been doing the play-by-play, and we had 119 stations in, I think, 15 states, something like that. And uh, ABC called, and I was an ABC affiliate, and they said, uh, we want you to do a college football telecast. So that's a lengthy version of how I got to ABC television. One of the interesting things that – so I've had Brad Sham, who used to be your color guy on the podcast in the past, and I asked him what he had learned from you. And it's interesting that you said you – didn't really consider yourself much of an analyst because he said that he learned a ton about uh, being an analyst from you. Talk about working with Brad Sham and learning learning the X's and O's without playing. Uh, Brad uh, uh, and I worked together from 76 to 83. Uh, he is going into the Texas Sports Hall of Fame uh, sometime this fall, and he has done me the great, great, great honor of presenting him for that award, that spot, 
uh, in the fall. So uh, we have uh, we started in '76 when I left to go to the network full time in in '83, uh, '82 actually. Then that were being CBS, not ABC. Brad moved over to my spot, and uh, for those of you who might not know him, uh, he is now celebrated his 40th year as the play-by-play guy for the Cowboys, and they just dedicated uh, the radio television side uh, in in AT&T Stadium, or those of us who know it uh, differently call it Jerry World. Uh, but that that location is now in in it's the Brad Sham uh, radio television area. Uh, I did not know that he th- that he thought I he'd learn from me is that role uh, because I you know I'm not I'm not about to di- dissect why a trap block did not did or did not work and uh, it's more. My view of that role, if you're not not a player, I mean, why would why would I, having never played the game, as Cosell famously said, why would I ever assume that I could dissect why a play worked uh, to a higher degree of liability than the Terry Bradshaw, a Dan Fouts, a Gary Danielson, uh, any of the thousands of guys that I've worked with over the years who did play. So I saw the role as a storyteller's position. Uh, yes, you know, you can recite statistics, but uh, it to me it was that and now in, in television, there are distinct roles. A play-by-play guy and the analyst, you know, if, you're, if you know your craft and you're lucky at it, you make those things weave in and out with each other. It's not, not, it's not done in isolation. The play-by-play guy does not do uh, from the start to the tackle and then turn to the the an analyst and say, okay, your turn. There were guys who used to do that, by the way. But it's more of a conversation. And I think I learned how to ingratiate myself into the broadcast at the side of Bill Mercer. I appreciate that Brad said he learned a lot about it from me. But I'm not sure in what sense he learned. I, I would have thought more he learned about how how whatever I do as a play-by-play guy. But let's talk about a man who has carved his niche uh, into Dallas Cowboy history. He's he's an amazing guy, and he shows no signs of of letting up. When you worked for the Cowboys, you were able to get to know Calvin Hill as a player. And years later, you obviously called the iconic play where Grant Hill threw the the full-court-length pass. Christian Leitner hit the famous shot in the NCAA tournament. Do you just look at your life and some of the serendipitous things that have happened and just say, just pinch yourself? Yeah, I'm Forrest Gump. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, and, and, and that, that whole relationship, you know, the, uh, Calvin and Janet, uh, became pregnant in, uh, around winter time of 71, I guess, uh, and 1971 and, and Calvin and Janet and I were really good friends. And so I said, when the due date came close, 
in early October of 72, uh, I said, when, when Janet gives birth, please call me. And so uh, on October 5th, 1972, Calvin called, and I, on my 10 o'clock telecast on Channel 8, uh, I announced uh, the birth of Grant Henry Hill, uh, first child ever, turned out to be the only child for Calvin and Janet. Uh, as, a, as an aside, uh, Roger Staubach takes credit for naming him, uh, Grant Hill. Uh, he was in the, in the room to see Calvin and Janet uh, the day after the birth, I guess. Uh, and, and they were having a conversation about what to name him. And, uh, Calvin wanted to name him after his dad, whose name was Henry Hill. And Janet somewhat, uh, took a firm stance and said, no son of mine is going to go through life as Henry Hill. Roger was the name. And I don't know where the name Grant came from, but, uh, he suggested Grant Hill, and they compromised and put Henry as his middle name. So now that Sunday, that was a Friday night, and that Sunday the Cowboys were playing the Steelers at Texas Stadium. And with less than a minute to go, two minutes max, uh, Calvin threw a halfback pass 50 yards to Ron Sellers, who had gotten behind the Pittsburgh secondary. And Dallas won uh, 17 to 13. Now this was before the rivalry really got intense uh, in the Super Bowls, but it was a significant, uh, a significant win, and I'd never forgotten that. So now go forward 20 years, and and Grant Hill is now a six foot eight inch sophomore at Duke University. And with 2.1 seconds to go and nobody guarding the inbound pass, he heaved, in my mind, uh, the football equivalent, of, of basketball equivalent of a football halfback pass. He, went, he, he threw it 70 feet and had a little curve on it, so Leitner had to go a little to his right. But then uh, Leitner had the presence of mind to realize that he had time to put the ball on the floor and fake and shoot. Uh, and in the aftermath, after after the celebration had begun to subside, uh, I looked over and I saw Calvin and Janet sitting first row behind the Duke bench, and they were just euphorious. And uh, all of a sudden, I flashed back, and I, so I told the story in the in the recap at the end of the game about how 20 years earlier Calvin uh, had thrown a touchdown pass, and here. This is synchronicity at work. Here's uh, uh, their son, their only child, uh, finding Christian later with an open pass. Now, just the, 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 the finale to this whole story is uh, when I was still doing basketball at CBS, we were in a seminar in March, uh, us and the Turner guys, and I was on a panel with Bill Raftery, uh, Grant, Steve Smith, and somebody else. And I told that story about Grant 
and Calvin and me announcing the death. And he looked at me in shock. Grant did. And he said, I've never heard that. And so the next morning, he, he saw me at breakfast, and he said, I talked to my mom last night, and she confirmed that story. And I said, what, you think I was lying? <laughs> and he said, no, 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 he, I just never had heard it. So I wanted her to confirm that that is what happened. And uh, so he learned, what, six years ago that, that uh, I had announced his birth. So we've, we've laughed about that ever since. And I don't remember if I read it or watched it on a video or what the source was, but is it true that you didn't actually necessarily like your call of that entire game? Uh, that's true. Uh, I, I, and I've, I've, I've somewhat, with more sarcasm than I ever intended, because I would never uh, be sarcastic about anything Mark Albert ever did, but I was on a radio show in Atlanta, uh, way in the aftermath. That took place, that game, that famous game, uh, March 28th of 1992 uh, in, in Philadelphia at the Spectrum. So this had to be early in my association with the Southeastern Conference. I was doing a radio show in Atlanta, sports talk show, and the guy said, uh, you know, you, you, you've been very, very fortunate You've had a number of calls that are memorable, uh, and that's just, it's preparation and opportunity, and then you pray to God that you're equal to the moment, and I've been lucky that that, that has happened a few times. Uh, but he said, uh, let's talk about your, your description of the Leitner call. Are you proud of that? And I never thought about it, but sitting there exposed on a radio show in Atlanta, uh, drive time. And I thought back, well, all I did, and I said this on his show, I channeled my in, inner R Marv Albert and I screamed, yes. And I guess it was appropriate to the moment, but I, you know, I, I never, uh, I, I've never looked back at that. Now the game itself, I did it with Lenny Elmore. And part of the story is I never watched the tape of that game uh, for until 2003. Uh, and I only, and here's why I didn't watch it. Uh, I thought Lenny and I had captured the game from start to finish. Uh, and, and we knew that it was an extraordinary event in sports, in athletics. Uh, and I didn't want my memory of us working that event to be intruded upon by reality that would alter how I felt about it. And I was afraid if I watched the the thing from start to finish, I'd be critical. And you know, and we all are, of course we are, about about our work. So it's never, you know, I, I'm probably too proud of the, the Tiger Woods call and. Oh five and Jack Nicholas and uh the the Alabama Auburn touchdown kick or miss kick return. Uh I probably take gloat too much about the not really, but uh in that context I hope you understand what I'm saying. It was just yes. But it worked. It worked and, and what I was working a playoff game with Raftery. We were in Minneapolis in oh three 
And Bill knew that I had never watched the game. We, uh, not that I bragged about not watching it, but and we had talked about that call. And he called me about nine thirty in the morning. We were playing. We were doing Marquette and Kentucky in the uh, uh, in the regional finals in the Midwest that afternoon. And he said, uh, "ESPN Classic has Duke Kentucky on." Uh, you are you really ought to change channels or whatever you got on and watch it. So with his urging, uh, I watched it. And I must say now at the end of it all, I thought, well, you know, we, we can, Lenny and I kind of captured that, that we did okay. Um, so I'm not embarrassed by anything associated, with, including the later call. I just thought it was not particularly inspired. You have been a part of so many big moments. What is the key in your eyes of capturing a big moment? Now, I don't want to sound like an old fogey, but I think experience helps. Uh, For example, let's go back 14 years to to Tiger in the chip shot in 05 at at 16. I I don't know when, when the ball sat on the lip of the cup for... 0.8 0.8 seconds, one, 1.8 seconds, and then dropped in. It was just an instinct, an instinctive reaction to what all of us had just seen, and that was uh, something likened them to an athletic miracle. In your life, have you ever seen anything like that? I was reacting uh, as I think anybody in the living room was reacting. I'd never in my life seen anything like that. So, but I think it's it's a comfort level uh, with trusting your own judgment and and finding the proper words and what to say. Uh, and and uh, you know, you asked me about the calls a while ago. I realize how fortunate I've been over the course of this somewhat lengthy career to have been given those opportunities and thank God for the most part, uh, I've been able to live up to the moment, you know, but I'll share with one, one with where I just, I flattened out, uh, Raft and I were doing a Villanova Pittsburgh game late in the game for the regional championship. Again, the spot in the final four, they got the ball to Scotty Reynolds uh, two two seconds ago, something like that. And Scotty Reynolds came flying by us with a dribble and uh, and penetrated and laid it up and they hit the rim and rolled in as the buzzer sounded. And I I just I obliterated it. I I froze. And so when we talk about all the great the great moments that I've been lucky to have, uh, I forget I don't forget that there was one, at least one occasion, probably more than that, where I just whipped. I struck out. And and after we got off the air, Billy said to me, where were you on that play? And I said, Bill, I, I just uh, I took a cold strike to the outside corner. Um, but it's, it's instinct, I think, and uh, a certain confidence uh, that comes from experience. In, in finding the appropriate or proper phrase. 
tell us the story about Norm Patterson not changing the camera on that Tiger call you were just talking about that led to partially led to it being such a memorable call for the ages. Yeah, that uh, when I do lectures or speeches or after dinner spots, uh, I try to include uh, the story of Norm Patterson. Uh, golf is golf is about as complicated uh, a means of conveying an athletic event as anything you'll ever find because it 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 goes over eighteen holes. For example, at Augusta, we've got multitudes of production trucks for a variety of different reasons. But the main truck that covers, in our case, we have one truck that covers the first nine holes and the second truck that covers the second nine, the inward nine. And the setup in the front of the truck calls for Lance Barrow, the producer, to take a seat on the very left-hand side Lance is in charge of editorial content. Uh, he uh, he introduces the replays, and he's got a multitude of people behind him helping him out. The middle guy is Steve Milton, and Steve is looking at a bank in front of him, no more than five feet in front of him, that goes from the bottom of the truck to the to the ceiling, with fifty four monitors, out of which he's got to select what shot. Uh, to put in the air. And the process in this case, and this is all hypothetical, but let's assume that the guy next to me in the tower behind 16, his name is Bob Wishney, and he is number number 10. So Steve, when Tiger's over the ball, says to the technical director to his right, Norm Patterson, uh, ready 10, take 10. And Patterson then pushes a key, and uh, and ten magically appears on your living room screens. And in this case, uh, Steve said when Tigers hit the chip shot, ready ten, take ten. Norm Patterson pushed a button, and ten comes on the air. Well, as the and, and it was it was uh, Bob who followed the ball, zoomed in on, never lost focus, and followed the ball down toward the hole. And as the ball began to settle on the lip of the cup, Steve Milton said, ready six, take six. Well, six is what we call a flanker camera. And it was to my left on an elevated little platform about uh, five feet off the ground. And Skip Shackelford was running that camera. And his assignment was a close-up of Tiger Woods. So he was shooting Tiger from just below the shoulders to the top of his head. Real tight shot. And the idea is to get the reaction when the ball didn't go in. So Steve properly said, uh, ready six, take six. And Norm Patterson, now, this is, is like a... Uh, an officer in the deck uh, getting a command from the captain, you know, to take rudder right or whatever it would be, and ignoring that because intuitively Norm Patterson thought, not yet, and he stayed with camera 10. And that is a 
fireable offense, just like if you're at sea, to ignore the direct command of the, the, the director would be called into the office and get your hands spanked or get released if it's really uh, an egregious mistake. Well, because Norm made that instinctive call, we all saw the ball drop. And it was only after the ball dropped that he took camera six, and then you saw Tiger's reaction. Uh, and there, there's a tragic end to this story because uh, Norm, I, I didn't know that happened uh, until six months later. Uh, well, more than that. Almost, yeah, five months later, I guess. We're starting the football season, and I'm getting ready to do an SEC game, and Norm Patterson and Steve Milton were my guys uh, in the truck on the SEC, uh, director, technical director, uh, along with uh, Craig Silver, our producer. So I, they had assigned me to an opening game in the NFL uh, in Miami because Saban was the Miami coach, and they knew I knew him. And I worked with Dan Deerdorf, and they thought, well, Saban's kind of a, a, a tough nut to crack for the media, but if we've got Byrne there, maybe he can soften the edges a little bit. So that's why I was doing Miami and, and Denver. And Suzanne Smith, one of my dear friends in the business and a Hall of Fame director herself, she said, do you know what happened in the truck at Augusta with Steve and, and Norm Patterson? What are you talking about? So she told me that story. Now, a week later, Nancy and I drive from Miami to Gainesville, and we're going to open the season at the University of Florida. And on Friday afternoon, I'm in the truck with just Steve and Norm. And I thought, I'm going to have a little fun here. And uh, so I was sitting in Lance Barrow's spot, and I said, you know, that the reaction shot and the whole coverage of, of Tiger's chip shot, that was pretty extraordinary. And I said, do you guys get much reaction to the way we covered that? And I knew by then what the story was. So Steve looked down and he said, where are you going with this? And I just grinned at him and I, and I looked at Norm and I said, and, and Norm said, very, he was a very quiet guy. He said, well, you know, in the end, we're all family. And, uh, then, Tragically, when golf season opened in January, our guys were at the San Diego Open uh, at Torrey Pines, and Norm went for a jog, and he dropped dead of a heart attack. He was 41 years of age, uh, just a total anomaly, uh, and he was buried in Cincinnati. He left a wife and two kids, and Steve Milton was asked to eulogize him. So Steve went back to Cincinnati and told that story at his funeral. You can tell I still I still get very emotional about it. Uh, and Steve's purpose was in sharing the story was he wanted everybody in his family and his friends in Cincinnati to know that the reason that shot sequence succeeded because of Norm Patterson. So that's that's the story of that. Wow, tough to follow that one. Um, 
We see Augusta on TV, and it looks incredible on TV. Does it do justice to being there in person? No. No, it doesn't. Even even in high def. Uh, the first time I ever saw high def, we were all, our, our CBS crew was covering the Olympics in Japan in 98, and uh, they introduced this concept of high-definition television. And our guys were really excited because we were going to introduce that at Augusta in the spring of of uh, 99, uh, no, in, in, I'm sorry, in the, in the spring of 98. Uh, but even with high depth, it doesn't, uh, and the biggest factor that we can't reasonably portray are the elevation changes. We've tried uh, 3d television, but you just, until you walk the course, it's hard to imagine uh, the tenth hole, for example. It's got to be a 150-foot drop from the tee to the landing area for the tee shots and then back up the hill. Uh, the same is true at 18. Uh, you stand there and you see the famous, you know, those two bunkers in the fairway, and you're, you've got a handheld guy behind the golfer, and he's framed the shot, and you get a sense that it's uphill, that second shot. But the severity of the uphill uh, angle, I don't think we can ever properly properly convey. Uh, and, uh, yes, we, we capture the beauty of it, uh, I think, and we do a good job of that. So when if you're lucky and there's no early frost and the azaleas are out in the dogwoods and uh, you'll you'll see something on television that will very closely resemble what you see if you're lucky enough to be there in person. But uh, it's the elevation changes, I think, that we just can't get right. Have you ever been able to play a hole at Augusta? Do, the, do they let you I've do that? I've played twice. Uh, I've played twice. I have. I can't play anymore. I've got. I've had back surgery and arthritis in my in my thumbs so i quit playing golf about 10 years ago but when i could play uh, i i got the first time they they allow members of the media to play on on mondays now i've i've been there so long 35 years now and i know a lot of people who are members and so i suppose if i still played i could call it because you got you can't just walk on the course. You've got to be there in the presence of a member, not not at the invitation of a member. He's got to be playing with you. And I'm sure I, I could force it. Now, anyway, the first time I played uh, was in a foursome with Pat Hayden, Brent Musburger, and the president of our CBS Sports Division, then Peter Lund, and we played, and, and Brent and I were really awful. Um, Pat and Peter were 10 handicaps, and they acquitted themselves quite nicely. The second time I got to play, uh, and again, it was a Monday morning, I played with Rick Gentile, who was then uh, our uh, vice president in charge of production, uh, Frankie Cherkinian Jr., the son of, 
of the legendary uh, executive producer of golf, and Jan Stevenson, who was uh, a very dominant member of the LPGA from Australia. And Jan and I had known each other. She lived in Fort Worth when I was still in Dallas. And uh, I wound up, I was, I was never better than the 14 handicap. That was my, my lowest uh, handicap ever. Uh, but I had a magical day that day. And from, uh, from the members tees. Now you, you don't play from long tees. I, you, I don't know how a human being can play the 11th hole from <laughs> the club tees in the back. I mean, pro tees. Anyway, uh, I shot 86 and I remember we teed off at seven and the sun was just coming up. And then we, we played number one and we hit our tee shots on number two and Jan and I happened, we hit close to each other and we're walking as the sun rose. And I said to her, I feel like I'm in the middle of a commercial. Uh, it was just, uh, an extraordinary day. So I've got that memory and I'm like, it's like never watching Duke, Kentucky. I don't want to spoil that memory. So, um, yeah, I'm 86 at Augusta on a Monday morning. Not bad. Did you sink a putt and look at the people you were playing and just say, yes, sir? <laughs> no, no, I, I, uh, I, no, I didn't. Uh, I'll tell you something funny though. After the, the Nicholas putt in eighty, Pat Hayden and I are still really good friends. We worked together uh, in '86 doing the Pac-10 games when we became friends, uh, and then I spent three years at Turner when we lost the NFL. And Pat and I did the Sunday night games together uh, for Turner Sports, and uh, and then he went back to. Uh, NBC and 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 he is now a member at Augusta. Pat Hayden is. Uh, he and Lynn Swan are are both members. Uh, but he told me in the aftermath of of Nicholas, uh, the Nicholas putt in '87, and Pat belongs to Augusta, uh, Pine Valley, the L.A. Country Club, and uh, one other. I mean, he's. And he's a serious golfer. He said, whenever they're having a match in Los Angeles and anybody sinks a putt over 10 feet, they are obligated to yell, yes, sir. <laughs> uh, I, I just, in my head, I imagine you golfing with a guy like Brent Musburger and you guys doing play-by-play -play to each other's putts just to mess with each other. I, maybe they I don't can tell you this about that. Uh, I was a better golfer than Brent. <laughs> and that doesn't say a whole lot. I, I, I and I'm telling this story. Uh, you, you've induced me to tell this completely out of school. And if Brent ever hears about this, he's going to call me and say, "You told that uh, anyway." <laughs> we teed off on ten, and uh, Brent and I were the last two up. Uh, Peter Lund and, and Pat teed off first, and they're in the middle of the fairway. And I hit it short, but I was in the fairway, and Brent hit it into the woods on the right. Now, we're, he's, we hear him thrashing around, and uh, Peter and, and, and Pat both took fives, bogeyed the hole. And this is the one I said with the elevation 
uh, drop has got to be 100, 100 feet minimum. And uh, so we finally, I, I wound up uh, hitting the green in three. No, yeah, three and three putted for a six. And so now Peter's got the scorecard. He said, uh, Pat, what'd you get? Pat said, five. Uh, Vern, what'd you get? I said, six. Uh, Brent, what'd you get? And there's a long pause. And he said, put me down for a six. (laughs) We all looked at each other and thought, well, okay. (laughs) And uh, it wasn't the only six on the card that day for either of us. Yeah, that is uh, the one sport that I've just never been able to play. We've now talked for an hour and 15 minutes, and we haven't even talked about college football. You became the voice of the SEC in the year 2000, but it wasn't necessarily what you wanted at that time uh, because Dick Enberg kind of bumped you down to that position, which bumped down at that time, ended up maybe being a blessing in disguise, but... Just talk about your well, career. Well, that's exactly what it was. Uh, I mean, I was I was the number two guy in the NFL. I was working with Dan Deerdorf, and uh, uh, being number two in the NFL meant you almost always got a, a really good game on Sunday. Uh, there was a comfort factor. Uh, doing the NFL is much, much less challenging than doing a college game in terms of the number of people who play the game and uh, getting to the site uh, and and the type of hotels. I can promise you this. There are no Four Seasons or Ritz-Carlton's in the Southeastern Conference. Uh, none. And and uh, the first 10 years getting there from where we live in uh, Steamboat Springs, Colorado, was a challenge. Uh, I'd have to fly from Steamboat to Denver, Denver to Atlanta, and then Atlanta to wherever. That was on Thursday. And then on Sunday, complete the process to come home. Now, fortunately, my wife, Nancy, uh, travels with me every every assignment that I've, I've got. And uh, But I, I, I didn't relish the idea. And I'd heard rumors that Dick was unhappy. I heard him from Pat Hayden. Pat was working with Dick doing NBC games, Notre Dame football. And Pat called me. He said, Give, uh, want you get, get a, I want you to have a heads up. Um, Dick is really unhappy doing college football. He wants the NFL back. So I heard the rumors, and I've read them in Rudy Marchke's column. And uh, I called my boss, Sean McManus, and just to cut this real short, I said, is there any truth to this? He said, I can't imagine you know, he's a, a Dick's a, a high salary guy, and he's been at NBC for 30 years. Uh, I, I just don't think we would sign him. But if he does make himself available, he's one of the best ever. I've got an obligation to talk to him. And there was a long pause. And then Sean said, uh, now, in the unlikely event that we were to hire Dick, how would you feel about going to the Southeast Conference? And uh, I hung up the phone, said the right things. and I said to Nance, uh, pack your bags for Tuscaloosa. It's a done deal. And, of course, it was. And, and so my initial reaction was disappointment. 
But obviously, over 17 years, it turned out to be the, the greatest professional assignment of my life. And uh, uh, we were doing a, a, a national telecast, a, essentially, uh, essentially a regional sport. But then the BCS came along. Uh, no matter how you felt about it, I was not a big fan. It did manage to make every game relevant that was played in the Southeast, relevant in the Big Ten and the Pac-10 and the ACC. And then by happy circumstance, uh, the SEC emerged and won seven national championships in a row. So our, our profile got very, very high. And uh, to the extent that I, I, I believe I'm correct, during the SEC, we have captured the ratings championship, I want to say, for eight, nine, ten years in a row. Uh, and it continues. Uh, we, we, you know, ABC and ESPN dominate the landscape in college football. But that's Saturday afternoon at 3.30 when that theme rings and you introduce Alabama and Auburn or Alabama and Georgia or Georgia and Auburn or Florida and Tennessee, it strikes a note in a lot of people. There are two more things I want to ask you about, and they're both kind of just uh, off-the-wall sports or sports situations that you covered that I was able to dig up that that made me chuckle or wonder. And the first one is bowling for dollars. I'm oh, just dear gonna, God. I'm just going to shut up and let you say what that is. Well, I can't get away from it. Uh <laughs> This was a show that aired. It was syndicated uh, around the country, uh, syndicated by a group called Claster Productions. I actually, about three years ago, met John Claster, who owned the owned the rights to it. They had two shows: Bowling for Dollars and Romper Room. How about that for a combo? <laughs> and the show was uh, a game show. Uh, but it had a, a bowling theme to it. And we taped them every Monday. We would do six shows, half an hour each at the forum lanes in Grand Prairie. And I was embarrassed. I didn't want to do it. Uh, I, I didn't see myself as a game show host. Well, my, my bosses at channel eight said, we knew you were going to say that. Here's the name of Chick Hearn in Los Angeles, he hosts the show on Channel 5 in L.A. Uh, give him a call, and he's expecting your call. So I did call Chick, and this is I'm still in the process of do I do it or don't I? And I said, give me a, a sense of the show, and he said, he told me the format. You interview a guest, they introduce people in the audience, they say hello to people at home, and they have a big barrel filled with postcards, and the contestant draws a name out, whatever. He wins or she wins. They share an equal amount with whoever's name is drawn. Pretty simple. And I said, well, how does it do in the ratings? And he said, oh, my Lord. He said, we run at 7 o'clock on an independent station, KTLA. Uh, we kill Huntley Brinkley. We kill Walter Cronkite. We kill whatever ABC puts up there. And then I got a, a little pretentious. And I said, Mr. Hearn, 
I've just started doing the Dallas Cowboys on radio, and I'm very proud of that. And you're known across the country as the voice of the Los Angeles Lakers. And I said, uh, are you at all concerned <laughs> how cheeky I was? Are you at all concerned about your uh, your image as the voice of the Lakers doing this uh, game show? And he started laughing. He said, son, this thing is so popular and it's such a different kind of a show that you'll 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 have no idea the impact it will make. So get rid of that idea of the image uh, and just do the show and bank the money. And so based on his advice, I did it. And here's the ironic thing. Now, it, was, it went off the air in 76. So we're talking 43 years ago that it went off the air. And to this day, at least once a month, if someone, I'm in a restaurant or uh, boarding an airplane, someone will say, uh, I grew up watching you in Dallas, and I know that what's coming next. <laughs> I used to watch you on Bowling for Dollars. So, and, and I was embarrassed by it at, at back back then. Now I embrace it. Uh, it obviously meant a lot to a lot of people, uh, and and so it's a part of my history. What about covering a volleyball game in what I'm assuming was Cold War Leningrad, which is now Saint yeah, Peter. yeah, yeah. I've I've had a, I've had a few weird assignments. Uh, <clears throat> I did the World Horse Jumping Championships uh, in Aachen, what was then West Germany. Now it's Aachen, Germany, uh, with a guy named Robert Ridland, uh, and there's a stadium. In Aachen, 65,000 people built specifically for the sport of horse jumping. And I said to Robert Ridland, who had been captain of the U.S. equestrian team, Robert, I don't know anything about this sport. And he said, if you can get the name of the horse and the rider properly introduced, I'll handle the rest. And we got through it that way. Uh, The Leningrad show was uh, the meeting of two previous Olympic champions that did not compete in the, the two Olympic games. Uh, we boycotted Moscow in 80. The Russians boycotted Los Angeles in 84. The Russians won the gold medal in 80. The Americans won the gold medal in 84. So now they're going to meet uh, in a five-set match at uh, Ubelani Stadium in Leningrad. And I did the game, uh, did the telecast with Chris Marlowe, uh, who had been uh, a member of that 84 team. And so now we're a year removed from the 84 championship, and all of the great players from that 84 team, and arguably the greatest volleyball player ever, a guy named Kart Karai, uh, they were on that team of, of Americans. And it just, uh, again, Nancy travels with me, and we spent 10 days in Leningrad. Uh, This was 85, so it was the the height of the Cold War. And the place was packed, just packed. And the Americans won in five sets. They won the fifth set, and uh, the celebration went 
way into the night. And uh, uh, I, again, I, I, so, I told Chris, and by the way, Chris now does play-by-play over the Denver Nuggets of the NBA. He lives in L.A., but he commutes to Denver, and so I, I hear him a lot. Uh, but that was his first telecast. And we had a tricky thing toward the end of the feed where we had we reasons that are very complicated. Uh, we had to go live from the back of a pickup truck uh, with the with the videotape live with the next to the last segment, which is when the Americans won. And I tapped him on the floor, uh, before we started it. I said, "Now listen, I'm not trying to play big." big time monster here but I've done this before and you never have so when they get in my ear and they start counting uh, 10, 9, 8 I'm going to put my hand on your shoulder uh, on your forearm rather and just lay out and let me, it was a countdown to a sound up tape and then we'd run for 13 seconds and the tape would go and then we'd talk a little bit more here comes another sound bite well, we did that live, so help me God, at midnight uh, uh, on a Saturday night, live back to the States, uh, and we got through it. So the vodka was consumed. <laughs> was there any concern for safety or anything being being in that situation? Oh, yeah. Do what now? I'm sorry. Was there any concern for, like, your own personal safety being in that situation at that point? Uh, no, that not time? really. Uh, not, not really. And I've, I've subsequently been back, believe it or not, Nancy and I honeymooned on a cruise ship in 82. And one of our stops was, was Leningrad. And so this was the same kind of environment and it was hostile, but no, I don't think any of us were concerned. Uh, and, and quite, I had, I had done a boxing show in Moscow in 1980 and we happened to be in russia when carter announced the boycott and then there was a, a visceral reaction from the russians how dare we and the the ostensible purpose was because of their invasion of afghanistan the russians uh, well think back now uh, history uh but i i had the the uh the real regret of explaining to 12 young men who thought they would be back in Moscow in the summer competing for Olympic medals that no, they were not going to have a chance to, to do that. Uh, that the, and so our, our boxing match became a very serious politically tainted event. Uh, and I, I, but even then I, I never, there was only there were only four of us who were uh, involved in that boxing match, and that was at ABC. Uh, I never, I was never concerned for the safety of, of any of our crew, or Nancy and me. Now, in '85, we we were there for the volleyball, and subsequently, I've probably been back four times. I'm going to say in St. Petersburg uh, in 1990. Uh, Scott Hamilton and I did the first of our figure skating shows at the European Championship. And then uh, Perestroika had started to take over and Glasnost and 
it was a, a, a little more comfortable, but uh, no, no. And uh, those experiences now of, of being back in Russia two or three times, four times, um, are, are experiences that I treasure. Well, we have already gone a half hour longer than I told you we were going to. And while I could probably stay here literally all day and just listen to your stories, I should probably let you move on with your life. Vern Lundquist, thank you so much for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Well, it's been a very pleasure, and you you evoke uh, a lot of memories. You've done your homework, I can tell you that, and I'm, I'm taken by that. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to episode 100 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow the show on the social media outlet of your choice, radio underscore Logan on Twitter, Say the Damn Score on Instagram, and facebook.com slash saythedamnscore on, you guessed it, Facebook. Anytime somebody is willing to give any kind of honest feedback, I always appreciate it, whether that is Apple Podcast reviews, an email. If you want to send a letter, nobody has done that yet. I don't think anyone knows my address, but if you can figure it out and send a letter, I'll be really, really impressed. So uh, anyway, the point being, I really appreciate feedback, and I thank everybody who's listened now for 100 episodes, almost four years of Say the Damn Score. So, as I've said 99 other times, as always, I'm your host, Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to Say the Damn Score just a little bit more.